0: Eyes in our hearts have been focused on a little strip of land across the sea. We've we felt sympathy for what has gone on in, in Israel, and certainly we have seen and heard the news of what takes place just about every single day. Most recently, we've seen some of and heard of some of the brave rescue operations that have been conducted to see if they could take back some of those who've been held hostage by Hamas these have been stories of courage and great bravery and show us that the heart of the nation of Israel but there are many stories in the history of Israel great courage and great bravery let's start this this morning by a story that took place on June 22nd 1976 a group of terrorists from a, an organization quite like hamas it was called the front for the liberation of palestine they hijacked an air france jetliner and it's 91 passengers the plane landed in uganda which at that time for you that remember history was was ruled by a tyrant named idi amin the hostages were guarded at entebbe airport where the hijackers were preparing their next move things didn't look too good if you had been on that plane however 2,500 miles away, just about a week later on July the 3rd, in Tel Aviv at night, three Israeli Hercules transports carrying a deadly force of Israeli commandos attacked Entebbe Airport. In less than an hour, those commandos rushed the old terminal, gunned down the hijackers, and rescued 110 out of 113 hostages. And a day later, on July 4th, Israeli Prime Minister yitzhak Rabin triumphantly declared that this mission would become a legend in history, Israel's history colored by courageous efforts of his people. And my second illustration goes back 4,000 years ago. The same story can be seen when we see the rescue operation of a man with whom you know, Abraham was the first Jew to conduct a rescue operation of hostages that were taken. The kidnappers in that day were a coalition of four Canaanite kings who attacked and defeated the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and some of the surrounding areas. They took off, they took away hostages, and one of those hostages was a relative of Abraham, his nephew, Lot. Abraham took 318 of his own men, trained men, I'll call them the proto-commandos, ready to, to fight. And they took off in pursuit until they found close to Damascus those who were captured. And there, on, under the cover of night, he deployed those men in a surprise attack. And his troops defeated the hijackers, rescued the hostages. And the story is in Genesis chapter 14. It summarizes his success. It says, then he, Abraham, brought back all the possessions and all Brought back also his kinsman Lot with all his possessions and the women and the people. It wasn't a very smart move to mess with Father Abraham. He had got on his side. And when he returned home after that slaughter of the kings, he was a hero. He not only brought back the hostages, but he brought back, as was common in that day, all of the spoils of war. Looked like a great celebration. And out of the blue, it was a surprise a strange man with a strange name who's there. His name was Melchizedek. Melchizedek, the king of Salem. We read this account in Genesis chapter 14. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who's delivered your enemies into your hand it's a strange strange story and think of this this is the only place the only historical place in the old testament where he's mentioned and what we read about him that's all we know yet abraham he came along and he said it's my responsibility to 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 give to you a tithe melchizedek in turn blessed him for the next millennium melchizedek was never mentioned again Until about 1000 BC, David was led by the Holy Spirit to make this rather cryptic statement. He says in Psalm 110 verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. David declared that God had a new plan that was unknown to the people at that time. And he was going to bring into history someone who was just like this strange character we read in the book of Genesis. Like Melchizedek, he would be priest and king. The Lord said his priesthood would be forever. And like Melchizedek, he would be appointed directly by God. And this was all promised. It was divinely guaranteed. Do you see that in that verse? It says, the Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind. And when the Lord promises something, and he says, he's not going to change his mind, guess what? He's not going to change his mind. This is a very intriguing prophecy, poetic word. God was, in his plan, was going to establish a totally different priesthood. Then we have to wait another thousand years to the next time we hear about Melchizedek. In the author of the book of Hebrews, writing to a floundering group of believers who were thinking about whether they should stay walking with Christ or go back to Judaism, the Holy Spirit led this writer to talk one more time about Melchizedek and talk about his background in his history and also what's going to be in the future. And he's claiming that Jesus Christ is going to be the fulfillment of the word that David prophesied in Psalm 110. And this truth was designed to be a great source of of comfort to those who were in a storm-tossed church. So this morning, my job is to introduce to you Mr. Melchizedek. We're going to dig into his life. I'm going to warn you right now, not an entertaining passage, not something that is going to thrill your soul. The truths don't lie at the surface. They're very deeply planted here. And if you were here way back... In August, when I was going through Hebrews chapter 5, the author attempted to start a conversation about Melchizedek. And he had to stop. And he had to say to his listeners who were receiving this, these words. in Hebrews 5 verse 9, he says, And and being made perfect. And and who's, who's who's he talking about being made perfect? He's talking about Christ being made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God, talking about Christ, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then he says this, about this, about this one, about Melchizedek, we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. That's telling you that what we're about to look at, it's not spiritual milk. This is not baby food. He actually takes a chapter and a half to warn his readers, that they are immature. And this is going to be hard for them to digest. But he comes back in chapter 7, and he's right back to that subject. He brings up the subject of Melchizedek. So quite bluntly, here's what I'm telling you. It's neat. My job is to make spiritual steak edible to you. Hard to chew. Your job is to try to hang on there. This this is some pretty complicated things. It takes your concentration. It takes the Spirit of God to teach you to understand what he's writing here. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 5 and verse 14 says, This truth is for the mature believer. So I'm going to encourage you, as, as tough as it might be, stay alert. Pay attention. God has something for you. And he has the theme that we've seen throughout the book of Hebrews. He is the best. This passage is designed to help you appreciate who Christ is, what he's done for us, to lift him up and to understand the work that he has done on our behalf. So are you ready? You have your Bibles open. If you're ready, you have your Bibles open. Hebrews 7, right? Ready to look at it. We're going to look, first of all, at the superiorities of the priesthood of Melchizedek. Chapter 7, verse 1. It tells us that this man was a priest, and it tells us that this man was a king. He was the king of a place called Salem. Now, if you put on a couple syllables in the front, you'll think of another city. Jerusalem, Salem. The root of this word Salem is Shalom. He's the king of a city called Peace. And it's believed to be the same place as the city we now call Jerusalem. He also was a priest. He was a priest of the Most High God. He was a priest, and he was a king. Now, are you with me on this? This is a pretty important point. Is there somebody else that you know of that's a king and a priest? Was that hard? You flunked this one, we're in trouble. Someone who's a king and a priest at the, at the same time. That's the person of of Christ, Jesus Christ became the ultimate priest king. Melchizedek was a priest king. By the way, if you know the Old Testament was something, a king was something that would not be for a Levite. The priesthood is not something that would be for anybody else other than the tribe of Levi. But Jesus came and he was the ultimate priest king. That was a fulfillment of a great prophecy tucked away in the rather unknown book of Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter six and verse 13. He says, "Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. And thus he will be what? A priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices, priest, king, and the same person. So let's look in a little bit more detail at verse one. For This Melchizedek, king of Sodom, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him. Now, the word Melchizedek exactly in Hebrew means king and righteousness. King righteousness. He was king of Salem peace. You get those two out He king of righteousness, and he's the king of peace. Righteousness. Peace. Righteousness always comes first. Peace always follows. The righteousness, the king of righteousness, is also the king of peace. Do you see where he's going with this? Do you see behind the scenes? He's letting us know something about our Lord Jesus Christ. What were some of the characteristics we read about the promised Messiah in Isaiah chapter 9? He's coming, he will be the prince of of peace the prince of peace so here he is he's the king he's the sovereign he's the one who has righteousness he's the one who has peace so we're going to see that Melchizedek foreshadowed something of the character of the messiah and something also of the history of the messiah so let's let's keep reading let's look at the eternal priesthood verse 3 this is his background this is what is rather unusual about him. Says in verse 3, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See, there's no record that tells us anything about his father or mother. There's no genealogy. We don't know his birthday. We don't know the day he died. We have no record of the day. It says, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. So that's talking about an eternal priesthood. I will tell you that theologians, Bible students, they do all kinds of backflips over this and do all kinds of contortions to make things fit. And sometimes when you read some of the things, it's really kind of funny, the things that you're trying to say. They make this man, Melchizedek, something other than a historical person. Some have tried to argue that he is a pre incarnate appearance of Christ. That Christ came down and occupied a body called Christophany. Uh, and then he blessed Abraham and then poof, he vanished into thin air. There's only one problem with that. Look, look at the look at what the scripture says. Yeah, but he did what? He resembled the Son of God. He was not the Son of God. He resembled in some way. That means he's a type, he's a picture. Of Christ, He's a man. All this means is we didn't know who his mom and dad were. We don't know where he came from. He just came on the scene. He was not Jewish in his background. We don't know. But his function is to show us something that we need to know about Christ. That leads me to the third quality I want you to see this morning. It's a personal priesthood. See, Melchizedek was chosen as a priest because of his personal Qualifications, not because of his genealogy. You you know know that the you that know the Old Testament well, you know that in order to be a priest, you had to have the right pedigree, right? You had to come from the right genealogy. Under Jewish law, you could not be a priest unless you could trace your line back to Aaron, right? Back to Levi. Character and ability, it made no difference. Right, you just had to tra- tra- track your way back to him. Character and ability were not qualifications. The only one essential to be a Levitical priest was you were from the tribe of Levi. Genealogy was literally everything. So he takes our minds and he makes us focus on Melchizedek because he actually pre- he actually uh, has the character type. He was he was a man of righteousness. He's a man of peace. He was a king. He was he was a priest. We also see something about his, his qualifications. We see that he was without genealogy, without beginning or end, and he prefigured Christ who had no priestly genealogy. Wasn't of the, the, the tribe that they would expect, but he was appointed by God to an office because of his character. So as we move on, we want to see something else. We want to see the Superiorities of Melchizedek actually proven, and in verses four to ten, the writer gives us several different ways to prove to you, if you were Jewish, why this priesthood was superior to the Levitical priesthood that they understood. Look at verse four. So see how this great this man was he 's going to give us some reasons. He was great to whom Abraham gave the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils, and the first reason he was greater is because Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Now, if we were having a small group discussion, that doesn't seem like a big argument. It doesn't seem like a whole lot of weight to us Americans, but it was a very important factor to a Jewish audience. The Jews understood its significance. It says in verse 5, And those... those descendants of of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people that was their authority the Levitical priests had every right, it was their responsibility to charge a tithe from everyone if you were Jewish, you had an obligation you can think of the tithe as as a tax not a free will offering was a command it's very Jewish This is part of the law, the Levites had a right to require that They collected a tenth from the people. Let's go on in verses 5 and 6. It continues. It says that that is from their brothers, that though these also are descended from Abraham, but this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So the second reason is this. He who is greater blessed the one who was inferior. Now, again, in American culture, that's not something we would care that much about, but it's very important to them. And remember exactly who this guy Abraham was. I mean, he was the patriarch, right? He was the one to whom God said, you, Abraham, you're going to be the father of a nation. And through your descendants, Abraham, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. He had that promise within him. He was, he was a man of great importance. But of all things, when this man comes out of nowhere... Here comes Melchizedek the priest who blesses Abraham. And verse 7 says, It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Again, remember that God had told Abraham that it's in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham was the supreme blesser, all the rest of the human race were the blessees. But Abraham said, Look, I see myself as underneath this special person named melchizedek one who is greater than i am and then he moves on and he says and he argues that melchizedek was even greater than all of the other levitical priests verse 8 it says in the one case ties are received by mortal men but in the other case by one of whom it testifies that he lives now if you're thinking clearly how is melchizedek still alive Keep, keep that on the back burner. How could he live on? We'll read about that in just a bit. But in verse 9, he says, One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now what what in the world is going on there? Stop, stop and think of it. The Jewish nation was established through Abraham. And down the generations after Abraham came the 12 tribes. And one of the 12 tribes was named Levi. And Levi became the establishment of all of the next priests. Originally, he says, inside Abraham was Levi. Or if I could put it this way, I could say this. Inside of me were my two daughters and then my grandchildren. And then my great-grandchildren and my great-great-grandchildren, on down the line. So in a true sense, theoretically, Levi, who would normally be receiving the tithes because of the law, paid tithes to Melchizedek. He was bowing to someone greater while he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. It's time for me to make a couple of observations here. His point is this, two, two things. Melchizedek's priesthood was superior in every biblical and every logical way, superior to the Levitical priesthood. And Second, his priesthood was was a type of the ultimate superior priesthood of our Lord Jesus, who's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And as the anti-type or the fulfillment of the type, he supersedes Melchizedek. It's just like, what would you rather have? your wife, your husband, your children, or a picture of your wife or husband and children. That's, that's the analogy. Melchizedek was a king of righteousness. He was the king of peace. But what couldn't he do? He couldn't ever make anybody righteous, right? He couldn't forgive anybody's sin. He couldn't give anybody peace. He was a picture awaiting for Christ, the true eternal Priest who gives righteousness and who gives peace. And it's only why, and through Jesus Christ, who gives us righteousness. That's why we read earlier, and I'll read again, Romans chapter three, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, but righteousness of God comes how? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's only Jesus Christ who is the genuine father Full king of peace, and his peace, listen carefully, is always a gift that follows the gift of righteousness. Righteousness comes first and then comes peace. That sequence is always true. It's righteousness, then peace. He's the prince of peace, but he's the prince of peace because he provides for us righteousness. And I understand that he is that, he is that person. He's the person who came to make us righteous and to give us peace. I understand that through the, the Gospels, we see that over and over again. Think, think of what it says about about Christ. It says, in, at his birth, the angels came and sang, peace among those whom he has pleased. And then on the eve of his death, he says, peace I live, leave with you. My peace I give to you. And then, after his resurrection to his disciples, he said, peace be with you. This is the, the link that we also see in Psalm 85. "To Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. And see, for the believers, these Hebrew believers who were wandering around, was helping them to see it's in Christ alone and only through Christ that we have righteousness and we can have peace. Righteousness and peace come only through Christ and his work. Righteousness and then peace. Righteousness always before peace. And we get that when we receive the gift of of Christ and the sacrifice he made for us. Now you've been very patient, you've plodded along, and you look like you're still listening. Most of you, at least half of you, look like you're still awake. So we'll kind of see we'll kind of make sure that we see exactly where he's going with this. He's telling us about something that's real important to a Jewish audience and should be important to us as well. The priesthood of the Jews was an inferior priesthood to the priesthood of Christ. The Levitical priests could never, ever bring people to God. They could never provide salvation. And these readers who are wondering which way they should go needed to understand the significance of that choice. You're either choosing someone who can't save you or forgive you, or you'll choose the real Messiah, the Son of God. They needed to hear that. So here he's reading writing to them and he says now if perfection had been attainable through the levitical priesthood for uh, if for under it the people received the law what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of melchizedek rather than one named after the order of aaron You, you follow his his logic he is back in the first century if you're looking for perfection by the way when you think of perfection here he's talking about if you think you can have access to god through the law that's not going to happen the law could not make someone righteous and he's saying if it could we don't need christ we don't need him and what Melchizedek does is he represents that the law it's law of god is good right it's perfect but it has a specific job its job is to show us how sinful we are nothing wrong with the law the law is not the problem The law is a tutor, it's a teacher to lead us to recognize our need for something else. So this point is is crucial in his argument. If the Levitical priesthood, if the law of Moses, if all of those sacrifices could grant us perfection or could bring us to God, it would not have been replaced by something new. So let's keep on reading. He says, For when there's a change in the priesthood, there's a change in the law as well for the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. I was getting very close to introducing Jesus to them. These things are being stated about Christ. He belonged to a different tribe. Jesus was not a Levite. Jesus was a part of the tribe of Judah. And one from Judah never functioned as a priest under the law. He says in verse 14, he says, For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Simply and bluntly, he said, Jesus was not qualified to be a Levitical priest. Now, does that mean he's not a valid priest? No, it simply means he's not a Levitical priest. He's a priest after a different pattern, after a different order. That's how we see Melchizedek, a priesthood that is altogether different. See, the point is, the Levites did their job. And now, after Christ died for us, after his sacrifice was presented, after he did what we're going to celebrate in just a little bit, they've been set aside. And now we have a new priest. It's the perfection of a superior priest. This new priest was the promised Messiah. This was meant to be a a great encouragement to these beleaguered believers don't mix old testament ritual with your christian faith now that might not strike you as powerfully as it did them because for us the law is ancient history but it's relevant it's still relevant it's still important the only way we get to god the only way to get to get to god is how through christ it's exactly what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2. There's only one way to God. There's only one God. and There's only one mediator between God and man, and that's who? That's the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Perfection, access to God, only comes through Christ. And then he shifts his argument one more time. He talks about the perfection of a superior priesthood. Now, what is his superiority based on? Look with with me at verse 15. It's based on his indestructible life, is, is his point. He says, in verse 15, this becomes more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. It's not on the basis of his tribe. But it's by the power of an indestructible life. Not family lineage, but the power of an indestructible life. That's a magnificent statement. I hope, I hope this is coming across to you. This is, this is crucial. This is the hope that we have. He said, Jesus Christ qualifies as one who has a perfect, indestructible life. Now, does that mean he never died? No. It means that he died, but then he beat it. He died, and he defeated death. So it's a death that's followed by what? It's followed by resurrection. That's the key. So Jesus Christ is the high priest that was predicted in the character and the typology of Melchizedek on the basis of re- resurrection. Every Levitical, pri- every Levitical priest lived... And then died, right? Lived, then died. Lived, then died. Lived and died. Lived and died. But Jesus Christ lived, died, lives, right? Lived, died, lives. That's the indestructible life. He's our great priest because of the quality of who he is. He's the Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end. His, he is the Son of God, and as a, as a human being, he experienced everything that we experience in our life. He's our perfect priest. And it's beyond ludicrous it's craziness to think anything you and I could ever do would make us right with God. We only can come to have a relationship with God on the basis of someone else's indestructible life who shows who he is by his resurrection. And whatever problems you have in your life today, it can be handled by someone who's perfect. That perfect person is Christ. And so don't do it. It's scary to, for me to think about how many Christians today are trying to find the answers to their problem by the Internet, by their friends. I mean, good grief, you've got the perfect solution in Christ. Don't look for anyone else when Christ is the answer for our problems. And now we get to the climax, the superior access we have in verses 18 and 19. For on the one hand... A former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. I didn't write that, but he said that about the law. In case someone tries to get you to walk back into legalism or think you can be made perfect by your works, he said, that's not going to work. It's weak. It's useless. It's empty. It's ineffective. Back in 11, we read this. He says, for for the law, now if perfection had been made attainable through the Levitical pieces, priesthood, but guess what? It it couldn't. It, it, it couldn't. It wasn't made through that. So at verse 19 it says, For the law made nothing perfect. Now here's the good part. This is where I was driving us today, but get this, this is this is the climax. He says but a better hope. On the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. That's the main point. That's what these wavering believers needed to hear. They were out there, and they're they're in in a storm, and they're afraid they're going to go down, afraid they're going to be shipwrecked. And he's telling them what? You're going to find your, your joy. You're going to find your purpose. You're going to find your security, not in who you are, not in what you do, but you're going to find your purpose only through Christ. And by that, you can draw near to him. And he wraps that all up by saying, here's your better hope. Here's what you're looking for. Here's what we're still looking for. In, in our day, we're looking for a satisfactory hope, something that makes us understand what's going on in our life and in this world. See, I'm convinced that the goal that God has and all that he does is so that we might have a relationship with him, that we might come into his presence. That's the whole point. That's the essence of our faith. That's the highest experience. That's the plan of God. Christ came so that we can have access to God through what he's done. I love the words of this old hymn that says this, Nearer, still nearer, I can't be. For in the person of his son, I'm as near as he. Want to get closer to God? Is that what you do. You don't need a priest. You don't need to be in a long line of trying to prove how, how great you are and all the external things you, you can say. What you need is to trust in the one who has an indestructible life. You need Christ, who's from the tribe of Judah, the only priest that lives permanently. And he's what I would like to call our permanent priest, our permanent high priest. And guess what? That's what we're going to look at next week, a great passage that teaches us who he is and what he's provided for us so i'll wrap up just a couple of thoughts quickly jesus not only knows where we're coming from he knows where we're going it's simply what i want to say there is it doesn't matter where you're coming from it doesn't matter what you have done in the past makes no difference the forgiveness of christ is not dependent on what things you've done in the past what matters is where you're going scripture makes it very clear in this very book it's appointed to men once to die and after that judgment you either choose christ you choose hope you choose access to god or you reject christ there's judgment And you know what that judgment's called eternal death it's called hell it's called the lake of fire so he knows where you're coming from and he knows where we're going And without him, we're going to a place you don't want to go. Second thought, Christ not only tells us we are weak and empty in ourselves, but more importantly, he tells us how we can be strong and complete in him. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And I'll tell you this, when Christ came, he took on all of religion. It's kind of like a throwing a rock in a calm pool. All the ripples came. He, he confronted the hypocrisy, the legalism of the Jewish religious structure. And he turned away from the Levitical priesthood and he turned them to himself. And One more thought, last thought. The most complete description of our faith is to enter into the presence of of god to enter into the holy of holies to sit on the throne with him that's the fullest expression of our faith to understand that the design of god for our faith is to bring us into a relationship with him full access to the god of the universe i'll wrap this up quickly with a with a story i've read a long time ago a, a book called born again by chuck colson you remember your history. He was one of the great defenders of, of President Nixon. People said that he was vicious, and he was determined to take down anybody who would try to go against the president. He had, ended up committing crimes and being incarcerated in jail, but he emerged as a man who trusted in Christ. And Early in his search, someone told him, Chuck, what you need is you need to go to a priest. He didn't know Christ at that time, but he said this. He said, I don't need a priest. I need a savior. I need someone who will forgive me for my wrong and come into my life and change me from within. And he found that in in Christ. He took the gift and he drew near to God. This morning, I don't know where you're coming from, but this is our only hope, coming to Christ, believing in him. And the good thing, he says, come as you are. You don't have to get slicked up before you go. You can't do anything. He knows who we are. Just come to him and admit that you need Christ. Take him at at his word because the Lord Jesus Christ, he he is the best. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look today at this rather deep passage that tells us about a man named Melchizedek, we end up at just again just seeing the picture that we have in Melchizedek in the work of Christ our high priest who lived a life that overcame death so that we could know you Father if there are any who come and are here this morning and are here without Christ I pray Father that you would prick their hearts as they realize what Christ has done for them and they will desire to trust in him and come to faith in what he's done for them and what he and who you are we thank you in the name of christ we pray amen